Good morning. We're at lesson two in the study of First and Second Thessalonians, and the title now is Encouragement and Election. That's after several renditions of it. I, uh, I'm really fascinated by our particular uh, text. It's evident from reading Paul's words that, that he has a, a great concern about the Thessalonians and their well-being, and you can understand why. He is there a short time, shorter than he would have preferred, and uh, he is uh, sent packing out of town in a way that wasn't exactly his preference. And when he attempts to go back to visit them, he is hindered by Satan. And so he has a great concern as to how they are doing. And that's very apparent in the epistle. Uh, it may be true that there's the same thing could be said on the other side. And that is that the Thessalonians may be wondering what Paul is thinking of them. Because here they are, uh, the, the, the center, the hotbed of opposition. It is the Thessalonian Jews that create the difficulties not only in Thessalonica, but in Berea as well. Uh, they uh, sort of escorted Paul out of town uh, very quickly when this whole issue came up with Jason. And uh, and so they haven't had contact with Paul, and they may be wondering whether Paul thinks about Thessalonica as one of those places you'd rather forget. When my uh, family uh, was younger, when my girls were younger, and we would travel, we uh, still have stories about motels that we have stayed in, and and uh, they are not fond memories in the sense that we want to go back and spend the night there, but we commiserate and we laugh at at the way in which we uh, suffered. And and you may the Thessalonians may think of themselves in that mode of here's a place never to return to again. They leave it off your itinerary. And I say that because in First Thessalonians chapter two he says. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But they may actually be wondering whether that's true or not. What did happen because of Paul's coming to us? What does Paul think of his mission here? Was it a success in his mind or was it not? So I think Paul's writing is, is to answer some of their concerns uh, as well. Uh, but I'd like to fill in some of the gaps before we get started. Some of the gaps between Luke's account in Acts chapter 17 of the, the story that, uh, of the founding of the church at Thessalonica and what we find from what Paul himself says in First and Second Thessalonians. It's sort of like, uh, I feel like I can identify with Luke. I get a phone call and somebody says, uh, we had the baby. And I say, wow, that's great. I hang up the phone and Jeanette says, what was it? Forgot to ask. Uh, how big was it? Don't know. When was it born? Don't know that either. You know, they want all those details and somehow I just left all that out. Well, Luke is sort of that way when it comes to the founding of the church at, at Thessalonica. And uh, not only is he short on details in the early verses of chapter 17, but when you come to the second visit... 
of Paul to the to Thessalonians to Thessalonica, it is very terse. Uh, Kevin was asking me on Friday, well, what do we know about Paul and his subsequent visit to Thessalonica? And I went home and looked it up in Acts chapter 20. And the reality is, you know that he must have passed through there, but it is so incidental, we have absolutely no real hard evidence about that. So there are some gaps that I think we have to fill uh, in order to really understand what Paul is doing in First Thessalonians. The first I mentioned last week, and that pertains to the length of Paul's ministry. If you were to look in Acts uh, chapter 17, then you would discover that Paul was uh, ministering in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. And it would be easy for us to conclude that that is the extent, the length of his ministry. But it's apparent to me and, and to most other students that that just can't be the case, that he was actually involved in ministry substantially longer. Three weeks was the amount of time he survived at the synagogue. But if you know Paul and you know the Jews in the synagogue, three weeks was a pretty long run because usually they were at the end of their string after a week or two, they didn't want to hear any more, and, and so uh, that's what uh, Luke tells us. But if you look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, and he describes the way in which the testimony of these uh, believers at Thessalonica has spread abroad, and he says, when we go to these other places, we don't have to tell them about you, they tell us about the way in which we were received when we came there. Now, it takes a certain amount of time. They didn't uh, Twitter and they didn't do all the things we do. It took a certain amount of time for that to happen. And so it would seem to me that there has to be a certain amount of time for that uh, testimony, as it were, to travel uh, to various places. The other place that I noticed is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where Paul is talking about the contribution of the Philippian saints to his needs. And he says in verses 14 through 16, you alone contributed to my needs, and he says more than once, so that's at least twice, you sent money to me in Thessalonica. Now, if you're going to send money more than once, I don't know whether that was necessarily on his first mission, but it says when I first went out, so if money was sent, then again, I would take it that that would, that would involve some time for the church at Philippi to realize that Paul has a need to send the money and so on. All of that's to say it's more than three weeks uh, that Paul was there in uh, Thessalonica. The form of Paul's ministry is not necessarily just what we see in the book of Acts. Now, I'm not saying that Luke was wrong. He was right. But Luke's point is to tell us how Judaism failed to receive the message of the Messiah because he wants to show us that now the gospel is to go to the Gentiles. But Thessalonians tells us that the message itself did not fail. Some Jews and many others came to faith. But the form of ministry that Luke describes is that form that took place in the synagogue. And that was a pretty standard uh, format 
And, and so, in a sense, I see Paul, through Luke's eyes, I see him at the synagogue, uh, standing or sitting, depending on the posture that would be the norm. Uh, and he is uh, commenting uh, upon the scriptures and reasoning to show that Jesus is the Christ. When you come to Thessalonians, you see a very intimate relationship between Paul and, and the Thessalonians and it isn't a pulpit ministry, is what I'm trying to say. You see a very intimate ministry where he says to them, you know the manner of men that we were. You know the kind of lives that we lived. It's, it's sort of like the television evangelists who, you know, you have this nice smiley face and whatever going on, but you don't really have a clue as to how they really lived their life. Paul is saying, I lived my life among you. You saw the way I behaved and the way my colleagues behaved. So there is an intimacy in the ministry that is not necessarily seen in, in, uh, in Acts. It is clear in Thessalonians. Then there's the composition of the church. When we read in Acts chapter 17, we, we read the report that some Jews believed as a result of his synagogue ministry and a good number of God-fearing Gentiles that is, Gentiles who had attached themselves to the uh, Judaism and their expectation of Messiah, and a number of those were prominent women. So we would take it then that there was uh, some... Uh, I'm sorry, in Thessalonica, there, there, yeah, that's right, in, in Berea, there was more Jews uh, than you see at Thessalonica. When you come to Thessalonians... Are we going to expect a, a largely either Jewish or God-fearing group? In other words, is the church at Thessalonica made up of people who have been saved through the synagogue ministry? If so, they have a fairly significant understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, and they have this fairly broad uh, background on which to draw. When we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, they hear how you turned to God from idols. Now, I don't know how you read that. I read that as raw pagans. Doesn't that come across to you? And he says that in a way that seems to characterize the whole church. So I don't see the church made up of a few Jews and a whole slew of of Jewish God-fearers, sort of like the Ethiopian eunuch who had a lot of background and came. I see these people as wet behind the ears pagans. Now, how do I get there? Well, if you read Acts chapter 17 through, you remember he comes first to Thessalonica, is driven out, goes to Berea, then he's driven out of Berea, and then he goes to Athens. And when we read about Paul's ministry in Athens, we see him in the street, in the marketplace, do we not? He agonizes over the idolatry of of the people of Athens, and he speaks to them a very different message than he would speak in the synagogue. But when you look at that account... It also tells us that Paul ministered in the synagogue. 
It just doesn't repeat for us, once again, what we've read in Acts 13, what we read in Acts 17, as Paul did this according to his custom. We don't have to read one more time how his synagogue ministry went. My point is, when Paul ministered in the synagogue, it didn't mean he had no other ministry. When he ministered to Jews and God-fearers, it didn't mean he had no ministry to pagans. And so what we see from his ministry at Athens is Paul would minister on the Sabbath within that context and the rest of the week he was out there in the streets ministering to raw pagans. Why would that not also have been true in Thessalonica? So what I see is not just a bunch of people familiar with the Old Testament, but I see a whole lot of people in that congregation who are absolutely new to the faith. They've come right out of it, and that's why he says, you have turned to God from idols. You're raw pagans. The composition of the church. Which would, my friends, add to this whole sense of Paul's concern about how the church was doing, because they're not people who have this huge backlog of of theological data on which to draw. They're new at this game. The uh, source of the opposition. Here's another thing that, that, that's a little bit of a twist when you read Thessalonians. He says in, in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings, get this, at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now, when we read Acts 17, where does the opposition come from? The opposition comes from unbelieving Jews. They then incite this riot and revolt, and that ends up at the house of Jason and whatever. But our inclination and our temptation is to say, the opposition that these people faced was opposition from Jews. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, your opposition came from your countrymen. Now, when we go to Acts chapter 16 in in, uh, Paul and Philippi, is that a surprise to us that Gentile unbelievers react to the gospel in a negative way? It isn't just unbelieving Jews that hate the gospel. It's unbelieving Gentiles. And remember, if you turn to God from idols... What do we know that happened in Ephesus with regard to idols? Well, the small business administration wasn't too excited about that because there were a lot of idol makers in town. And now, these people turn from idols, there are no idols being made or sold. And therefore, these Gentiles are hopping mad because now you've hit them in the wallet. So, all I'm trying to say is, Read Acts chapter 17. Understand, there is opposition. But as Paul says in Thessalonians, the opposition of unbelieving Jews is the opposition which says, I don't want the gospel going to Gentile heathen. That's their opposition. They hate the gospel going to Gentiles. Gentile opposition says, I don't like this gospel because it interferes with my idolatry and my wallet. So the opposition comes, as he describes it in Thessalonians, from unbelieving Gentiles. The nature of Paul's relationship 
with the uh, Thessalonians. That I've sort of alluded to in terms of his ministry, but let me let me be very, very clear on that point. Paul has an intimacy of relationship. He is not an arm's length preacher. He doesn't walk into the synagogue on the Sabbath, lay out his, his evangelistic message, and then leave. Paul lived among them, and Paul is going to make it very clear. He's going to spell this out in great detail in chapter 2. He's going to make it clear he not only lived amongst them, he worked amongst them so that they understood he was not living off of them, he was providing for them. And that became a part of the whole gospel package. So that when Paul is going to talk here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 about the message, he not only talks about the message that he preached, he talks about the lifestyle of the messengers who bear that message. And he's saying, we have a distinctive lifestyle that sets us apart from the cultists and all of these other uh, religious hucksters. You saw it, and the only way they could see it is that intimacy of relationship that took place as Paul was much involved in the lives of these Thessalonians, as were his colleagues. So that when you come down to the bottom line of chapter 1, this is all about Paul's confidence in the survival and the success of the church at Thessalonica. He is making it clear that he greatly loves this group and that he has great confidence in what God has done and will continue to do in the lives of these Thessalonian saints. Okay, now let's talk about the tension of the text, the elephant in the room. It's not on your notes, but I might as well just lay it out here for you. Last week, the tension in the text for me, and you saw it a little bit in my introduction, is how do I square what I read in Thessalonians with what I read in the book of Acts? And and, and this kind of discrepancy with the brevity of Luke's account and all of that, how do I how do I deal with these two things? And and my answer is Luke has a particular focus, and his goal is not to tell us everything we need to know about Thessalonica or the Thessalonians. Paul's going to give us the information we need in the Thessalonian epistles. Here the tension is this. I come to the book of Thessalonians, first or second, I come to that uh, these epistles with a certain background in my head. Now, granted, these are some of the earliest epistles, so I don't think that the readers, the recipients in Thessalonica said, wait a minute, this is not the way he did it to the Ephesians. This is not the way he did it in Colossians. This is not the way he laid it out in Romans. They haven't seen those books yet. Granted, we have. So here we are, and we look at Romans, and we say, when Paul sets out in Romans, he has 11 chapters where he sets down doctrinal theological truth, a a doctrinal foundation. True? Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, a doctrinal theological foundation upon which he builds his exhortation and application. Therefore, this is the way you ought to live. Same with Colossians. All of a sudden, here we come, and, and, and this is for us, in, in our, in our uh, sort of school of thought, isn't this what we would say? Practice is based on doctrine. And it is. It is. 
How is it then when we come to the book of Thessalonians that the initial chapters that are foundational application in 1 Thessalonians comes in chapter 4 and chapter 5. How is it that the first three chapters of Thessalonians is all about experience? Or No, I should not say it that way. How is it that the first three chapters of Thessalonians is so much about experience? Doesn't that sound, you know, in a, in a way, doesn't that just make you feel a little uneasy? I'll, I'm, I'll drop this on you and pick it up a little bit later. But years ago, in my younger days of ministry, when the charismatic movement was, was more of a red herring, I remember that we used to say over and over again, or it used to be said, the problem with the charismatic movement is that they base everything on experience and not on doctrine. And we, we, we spoke of that in, in, a, in a way that somehow put one as opposed to the other. What I'm saying is when you come to Thessalonians, he's heavy on experience. Come to Ephesians, he's heavy on doctrine. Paul is not making us choose, friends. He is not allowing us to have one to the exclusion of the other, either our experience apart from doctrine or our doctrine apart from experience. But that's the elephant in the room. As I come to this text, I notice that Paul starts out this introduction. It, 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 come on. If, it, you know, by the way, I was, when I was in, in the gym for a minute and there was some tea there, I have to protest. I didn't see any manly tea there. I mean, just, just that black. There was all this other stuff. So I'm just looking for a cup of just, you know, regular non-sissy tea. And, 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 and somebody comes up to me and, and, and says, the one tea I'm not taking is sleepy time tea. <laughs> yeah, right. No sleepy time tea for you guys. I'm pulling those bags out, man. I want you guys high on caffeine. This, this whole, uh, three chapters is all about Paul dealing with his thanksgiving to God. And so in verse two of chapter one, when he says, we give thanks to God always, come on, don't you just switch into auto mode and you say, oh man, here he goes again. Let's get past this stuff. Every epistle, he always says his grace and peace. You know, you just want to get on past it, but he keeps going for three chapters, folks. He isn't like these other epistles where he gets his thanks out and whatever gives you grace and peace and moves on to the heavy stuff. He just keeps on going all the way through chapter 3. So that's that's what we're dealing with. Let's talk about Paul's greeting for a moment in in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Notice the greeting is from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. We know from the book of Acts, that Silvanus, Silvanus is also known as Silas. That's what he's consistently called there in the other epistles, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 19, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, and in Thessalonians, he's called Silvanus, same guy. Remember, he's the one from Acts chapter 15. He and, and a man named Barsabbas uh, or uh, Judas... They are two prophets who are sent along with uh, Paul and, and theoretically at that point in time, Barnabas, and they're going to go out and they're going to re- uh, announce to these churches that have been established on Paul's first missionary journey, they're going to announce to them where they stand in this whole matter of how much Jewishness do you have to have to be a Christian. 
You don't have to be circumcised. You're not under the law and so on. That's what they're going to be sent out. So Silas or Silvanus is one of those. He's a prophet and he is with Paul. And of course, Timothy was picked up, you remember, um, uh, when he was at Lysias, uh, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. And he is uh, brought along now with them as well. Interestingly, Paul does not hear distinguish his apostolic status from his colleagues. He does not have to prove to these believers his authority, and so that is not a point that he chooses to make. What is interesting, though, is he describes this. He talks about the church as the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were looking at Philippians, he would say, he would address this to the saints who are at Philippi. If you were in First or Second Corinthians, he would talk about the saints who are in Corinth. But he doesn't say, uh, this is to the church in Thessalonica or the church at Thessalonica. He says it's the church in God, the Father, and in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? I think it's because of this whole issue of where, what is our standing as a church? You remember, there was always a pecking order. There always has been a pecking order. And, and so when, uh, when Jesus comes along from Nazareth, you know, the question is, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Uh, if Jesus and his disciples are from Galilee, the question is, who are they? And, and I think the same may have been thought about or even the thought come to the minds of the Thessalonians. It would be like this, writing to the church that is at Sodom. Now, doesn't that kind of leave just a strange feel? You know, the church that's at Reno or Las Vegas or you pick any sin city that, that supposedly is there. I think that Paul deliberately chose his words in these two epistles. They knew where they were from, folks. They knew where they were from. <laughs> what Paul wants to let them know is their true identity is not their geography. Their true identity is in God. So they are the church that is in God the Father. They are the church that is in the Lord Jesus Christ the Son. That's who they are. And that makes them equal with every other church, every other believer, no matter where they are in the world. Then you've got his uh, thanksgiving. We thank God always for all of you. I, it is amazing to me when you look at Paul's prayers. I'm going to come back to this. But Paul's prayers are just filled with thanksgiving. And he is thankful for these saints. Do they want to know how he feels about them? He loves them and he thanks God for them and he prays for them. Uh, and then he says, for all of you. See, within that community uh, of believers, there surely were some Jews who had converted to faith in Christ. There were surely some God-fearers. That's what Luke tells us. And there is this whole bunch of Gentile pagans. And, and there had to be, as there is in virtually any church, some kind of invisible pecking order where there is just this type who comes a little higher on the on the totem pole uh, of of status than others Paul refuses to distinguish them he finds all of them 
as the church, and all of them in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he remembers continually, they remember their work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope. Usually we say faith, hope, and love. He says faith, love, and hope, because that's kind of the way this is going to play out. One of the things that bothered me about this is it doesn't say your works, plural, of faith, your labors, plural, of love, and your endurances of hope, they're all singular. And, and, I, and I've, I, I've shared that uh, earlier in the week with some who were studying the text and just said, you know, I really, I really haven't got my arms around that. Here's my best, here's my best answer to that for myself so far. I think the reason it's singular is because he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the church corporately. Now, we have to, we have to understand when we come to anything about Christians and sanctification, it's, uh, as, as was said this morning in the, in the worship time, we're always thinking about me. It's always in individualistic. How am I doing in my spiritual life, in my, in my spiritual progress? Where am I? How is God dealing with me? When you look at Ephesians chapter 4, it's very clear that what God has done is brought a diversity of people together. Uh, socially, economically, racially, whatever, and and also in terms of their gifts, so that all of those people blended together may result in the collective growth of the church. Is that not true? So that we really need to think of the church more collectively than we do, and especially in our American competitive culture, we need to stop thinking as individualistic as we do and start thinking in a collective way. I think that may be a key to why he uses the singular. He's not talking about individual people and their individual performance. He's talking about a church and how it manifests faith, love, and hope in a way that brings glory to God and is evidence of the way in which they are moving forward in the, the faith. Stott, in his uh, excellent commentary on Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians uh, quotes Calvin, who says, this is a brief definition of Christianity, faith, love, hope. It's a brief definition of what Christianity really is all about. That's really true, isn't it? Faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and his shed blood for salvation and for everything that he does in our lives. Love uh, exercised uh, toward others. Remember, Paul says in Romans 13, if one has love, then he'll fulfill the law. You don't have to have all the commandments crammed down your throat. Love seeks the good of your neighbor. And, of course, hope is looking forward to the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, those, those three elements, work, labor, and endurance... Those are exactly the same terms that are used in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, in the same order. And, and, and there, it's our Lord who's saying, I know about this, this, and this. And that's how he then deals with them. Our Lord looks at us as a church in the light of those three elements. So let's move to Paul's confidence regarding the Thessalonians 
as it is rooted in their election and in the sovereignty of God, as it's spelled out in verses 4 through 10. I I would first of all call your attention to the fact that he says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, that is, those who are loved by God are those who are chosen. And I want to beat this horse too long, but I would say to you, election is a matter of love. Election is a matter of love. I hear it said all too often, well, I like to believe in a God of love. And almost without exception, when people say that, what they really mean is he will not make distinctions. He will deal equally with all people. He wouldn't send unbelievers to hell. He's going to be kind and gracious to all. They don't understand love. And and we know from Ephesians chapter 5 that the marriage relationship is a picture of the love of Jesus Christ for his church. A man doesn't marry every woman. A man marries a woman. And he chooses her out from and apart from everyone, every other woman, right? It's selective. That's what Paul is saying here. His love is elective and selective. And interestingly, I knew there was some Old Testament text. If you look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 37, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, and verse uh, chapter 10 and verse 15, what you will see is God says, I set my love on you. And he says, it isn't because you were so special, it isn't because you were so holy, and it wasn't because you were so great in number. I selectively chose you. So election is a matter of selective love. Election doesn't mean second-class citizens. It means chosen saints. (laughs) For those of us who had our children naturally, folks, we took what we got. When they plopped out, we, you know, I mean, what you see is what you get. And, and, uh, that's just the way it works. But when there is adoption, you select. You select the one that you are going to love and that is going to be a part of you. And so it seems to me that when he mentions this matter of elections, what he's saying is, you didn't somehow sneak under the tent to get into the kingdom of God. You didn't come in somehow as second-class citizens. Every member of the church at Thessalonica was someone that God had personally chosen to be there. And that gives you uh, status uh, in his eyes and hopefully in ours. So what is what are the evidences of divine election? This is really the basis of Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence in the growth and the success and the sustaining of this church at Thessalonica, even though he can't get there, Satan's hindered him, even though he's at a distance, he wasn't there as long as he wanted, even though there's raw paganism and the center of opposition is coming from there, he is confident not because they are such great workers but because God is the one who chose them and God is the one who has brought about all of the things that he is going to praise uh, in their lives. So what are the evidences that one is divinely elect? He says in verse uh, 5, the first half, 
God authenticated and empowered the gospel message. He says, the word did not come to you in just words alone, but the word came to you in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in great conviction. Now, there are some who would say that that great conviction was this great sense of confidence and assurance on Paul's part. I'm, I'm sure that he was confident of the word, but I also read texts where Paul says, when I came to you, like in Corinthians, when I came to you, I came to you in fear and in much trembling. Why would he say that? Because he says, my confidence is not in my homiletical persuasive skills. My confidence is in God. I understand I cannot save anyone. I understand my words will not produce spiritual growth in anybody. His confidence is in God, and so he's humble regarding himself. So what I see here is the word that is spoken is spoken in a way that is absolutely powerful. And for us, I think we find that difficult. But a friend of mine who used to, who used to be here years ago was, was describing for me what happened when revival broke out in the Wheaton area. He was just a boy. And he would beg his parents to get on the, the bus uh, just to see what was happening. But people on that bus were weeping because of their sense of the holiness of God and of their sin and of impending judgment. People were just ripe for it. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't produced by any uh, human mechanism. It was the Spirit of God who was doing that. So he's saying, this word that came to you came through our human words, but it is a word that had more to it than that. It had, as it were, divine unction. And that was the unction of the Spirit. Now, remember John chapter 16, our Lord says, When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And, and I'll just interpose this for a minute. Uh, if there happens to be anybody here who's an unbeliever, or if you're witnessing to, to an unbeliever, let me just, let me just suggest you try a method. Somebody asked me the other day about witnessing to somebody, and I said, here's what I sometimes say. If what I am saying to you is the word of God, it's God's business to convict you and convince you of its truth. If what I'm saying to you is only my words, hey, they're nothing. Try and forget what I said. Just, just, I'm gonna, I'll tell you the gospel, but try and forget it. And, and if it truly is God's word, the Spirit of God is inside of you saying, you know, you rascal, that is true. You are a sinner. And you know Jesus Christ is righteous. And you know judgment's coming. So there is that sense uh, that Paul is saying is the evidence of divine election is that it wasn't just words that came to those people. These are words that came in power. God divinely authenticated the message. If we want revival, we better be talking to God about it and not going to methods classes as to how we can be more persuasive with our, with our words. Then uh, in the second half of chapter 5, he talks about the conduct of the gospel messengers. You know what manner of men we were among you. You not only know that the words that we spoke were words that were powerfully reinforced, but you know the lives of those who spoke the words to you. You saw us, you saw God at work 
in the messenger as well as in the message. So here you have this. This, By the way, I should say, this is just the introduction. Chapter 2 is going to pick that up and blow it out in larger terms. What did the gospel look like in the lives of the messengers who brought it to them? And I have to tell you, it's huge. The relationship between the messenger living the message uh, and the message itself is absolutely critical. So that the Spirit of God now is working in these people saying, this is the truth. And they're looking at it lived out in people who are proclaiming it. It's powerful witness. Third, the response of the Thessalonian saints to the gospel. In verse 6, he says, You joyfully received the message in the midst of persecution. I already told this before, and he's going to spell it out early in chapter 2. Here's a man who has come out of Philippi, who's just been in prison, he's been beaten, and he's got to be a very not-so-pretty presentation. And when he comes... He doesn't hold back on the gospel, nor does he hold back on the fact that if you believe that gospel, this may be your fate as well. And he says, these people believed in the gospel, they received it, and they joyfully entered into the persecution Paul told them was going to come. That, of course, is an evidence of divine work. Uh, It is not human at all. Then you have their becoming an example to all believers. When they receive this message and they joyfully receive the persecution that comes with it, now the word is gossiped out to all of these other areas, Macedonia and Achaia, and Paul says beyond that. And so wherever we go, people are saying, man, we already heard about you, and we already heard about the way in which God used the message you preached. So they become an example to all believers. And then in verse 9, they welcome the messengers and they turn to God from idols. Now, you really have to think about this carefully. It's one thing to add one more idol to your pantheon. And when Paul is at Athens and he's preaching this Jesus Some of the philosophers say, well, what do you know? He's got some new deity that he's proclaiming. We'd like to hear more about him. And what they're saying is, of course, in addition to all of our other deities. So it's no real huge problem to introduce Jesus Christ as another god. Uh, You know, it's just one more stone left unturned. Sure, I can add one more in in my pantheon of gods. Why not? But when you turn to God from idols and you leave all of those other gods and idols behind, that's when you know that there's genuine faith. I was years ago in a, in a village in, uh, in India and there was a, a Catholic school that was nearby. So we entered into the village and we started talking to the, the we, I, I listened and the translator talked to them and he and they said oh oh we're christians here and he says to them well tell me about that pile of rocks right here well that's one of our other gods and now you begin to get down to it when you forsake all other gods 
and you turn to God alone, that is huge, huge. Uh, Stott, in his commentary, quotes uh, a missionary or two describing how when people came to faith, you remember in Ephesus how they burned their magic books? And, and when you start doing away with all of these other things that are competitive with the exclusiveness of God and, and of the Lord Jesus in their life, and, and these people would take steps and measures which would literally mock the gods they used to serve. That's commitment. That's commitment. That's what Paul is describing here of these Thessalonian saints. And then they're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus who is the deliverer from the coming wrath. Okay, I've got some things I really need to say in application. One, we learn a lot about prayer from Paul. Somebody was talking this morning about how hard it is to pray and and whether you take the ACTS mode or whatever. But our prayers really are selfish, are they not? we got to get past the Thanksgiving part and get to the supplication part because we got a big grocery list we want to lay on God. And we really want him to get to work on that. Paul does not speak of, of any of his own needs here. Now, if, if you take, my friend, if you take the words of Paul in Philippians 4, that the Philippians sent to him in his need more than once, then I would take it that there probably were financial needs. Now, Paul makes it clear that he worked. But apparently there were, there were needs. Certainly there would have been needs if he devoted himself entirely to, the, to ministry there. He never, he never says in my prayers with a, with a little envelope included, you know, a response envelope, and you can send in your contribution here. He never mentions his needs. He mentions... These saints, they are the focus of his prayer. They are the focus of his joy. They are his crown and joy of rejoicing when he gets to heaven. That's who he's going to be rejoicing over. And so it's these saints, and his prayer will be, as Charlie read from Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying that they will grow in their knowledge of God and their intimacy with him. That's his focus and attention. So if we want to get our prayer life right... We ought to read Paul's prayers, and we discover that they probably are significantly different and more frequent than ours. The sovereignty of God in salvation, the implications of election and divine sovereignty. There, Paul bases his whole optimism and joy on what God has done and on what God will do. That's why he can be confident. And in that sense, he is absolutely in line with what he says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He who began a good work in you. That's election, folks. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of our Lord. That's his confidence. His confidence is in God and his work in the life of the people that, that he has chosen. Over the years, I've seen a number of people who have said, well, if election is something God does more than it's something that I do, and you understand, election doesn't exclude the necessity of proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't remove the necessity of you receiving the gospel. What it's saying is, when you receive it, you will have been chosen. (laughs) It's evident that God had chosen you rather than 
more so than you have chosen God. And, and so some people would say, well, if, if, if God's the one who does the choosing, then how do I know that I've been chosen? And I've literally seen people go around in agony and despair because they're just not quite sure whether they're on the list. And, and I would say that is not what Paul's point is here. Paul's point is here. You have been chosen. That is the basis of your confidence. That is the basis of your assurance. That is the basis of his encouragement to you about what God has done and will do in your life in the future. So it's not a reason for doubt. Nor is it a reason, an excuse for some kind of fatalism uh, or, or uh, you know, it's all of God and therefore I'm just going to sit back and, and passively wait for whatever God's going to do. I, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Some of the most depressed people I've ever known in my life have been misguided Calvinists. Not, not good ones, but misguided ones in the sense of saying, it's all of God, it's all His plan, what do I have to do with it? And they're just miserable people. Paul doesn't want you to be miserable, and he doesn't want you to be inactive. He wants you to understand, God has done a great thing in your life, and that is just the beginning. Because it is God who is the initiator of our salvation, and He is the source of our sanctification, then we have great confidence in what he is yet to do. Okay, I'm going to come to this whole thing about doctrine and experience because I've been just itching to get there, and that was the underlying tension. It seems to me that there's an unnecessary polarization that has sometimes taken place between these two elements of, of one's experience uh, in God and one's doctrinal understanding of God. And what I see is not one as opposed to the other. I see both of them as absolutely necessary. And to follow up on what Tom had said this morning, it's not a matter of my experience or the Word of God. It's my experience of God's Word at work in my life. So you have God working through His Word... And you have God, uh, uh, I guess that's, that's probably the way to say it, is God working through the truth and bringing about the experience that comes as a result of that truth so that true, vital, living faith is a mixture of knowing God in terms of doctrinal realities and experiencing those realities in our life so that this, this kind of tension that used to exist and I think has somewhat faded between those who are into experience and those who are into doctrine, the reality is we better be looking for both. But it is not what we do. That's that's what I see in this text. It's not I have to get out there and I have to improve my faith, hope, and love. It's because God has chosen me, He is at work in me. Now, I need to know him better. I need to do certain things. But it is not what I do for God. It is what God is doing in me and through me that is the focus, I think, of, of what Paul is saying. So Paul is not bringing people to despair. He is bringing them to encouragement. Incidentally, it seems to me when you look at this uh, Henry Blackaby's uh, series, Experiencing God, it seems to me, I, I'm, I think that's a great series, but isn't that an effort to try and get people to experience 
what is true and to put those two together as opposed to somehow having them wedged apart. Well, faith, hope, and love are certainly benchmarks of spiritual health, and because they are, they're probably areas that we can look at in our lives. What are the things that I'm doing? What are the areas in my life where my faith is being stretched, where I'm actually pushed to where I have to trust God rather than me or some mechanism? How is my love working itself out in my life, my relationship to other people? And is my hope, as we were talking about in the worship time this morning, is my hope really in Him? Am I really looking forward to His coming? Is it really imminent in my mind or is it distant? Uh, encouragement uh, that Paul has for the saints in difficult times surely applies to us. Times are getting tough and they're going to be tougher. What better thing to know than what Paul says to these people in the throes of great persecution and great obstacles and great opposition, that Paul has absolute confidence in God to bring these people wet behind the ears, so to speak, uh, forward in their maturity. I'm saving uh, up this one, the affection of Paul and his associates for the church One of the things that this epistle does and others do as well is to convey to the believers the depth of Paul's love for these people. He manifested it while he was with them. He reinforces it while he's apart. And I want to say, one of the things that this text did for me is it put words in my mind and heart for what I'd like to say to you. Have you ever been in the Psalms, and, and especially when you're suffering or whatever, and you just can't get the right words, and then you read a Psalm, and the Psalm says it better than you can, and so you can pray or you can live out that Psalm? That's the way I and my fellow elders feel about you. I, I, I want you to know that my fellow elders love you. And they rejoice over you and they pray over you. And one of the great joys of my life is to be a part with them in that. And when I read this text and I see what Paul is saying about his affection for them, I know what that affection looks like because I've seen it in my brothers. All right. Well, this is the, is the foundation that Paul is laying. And that is those who are at Thessalonica can have confidence and encouragement because it is God who is at work in them. And I would say this, what a great text for us about encouraging other people. I know that oftentimes we want to encourage other people and who are having difficulties. And the question is, is the substance of our encouragement the substance of Paul's encouragement? Are we turning them somewhere other than to God or are we turning them to God? Are we calling them to remember what God has done in their life when he saved them? Or are we calling them to something else? And what I'm saying is the only true encouragement there is is encouragement for people to cast themselves upon God, the God who saved them and the God who has picked, as I understand it, that's the point F in my notes, who loves to beat the odds. I mean, I think God would just love to send the pollsters out and they'd say, look, 
if there's any place on earth that you don't want to start a church, Thessalonica. Just not the right soil. God loves that. God loves to glorify himself by taking unlikely people and unlikely places and making that the center of the word that goes out that God has done a work there that other people in other places hear about and are encouraged by it. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his encouragement, not only to these believers, but to us. How great it is to know that it is your word that has been empowered, made real in our lives. It is your work in us that gives us confidence and gives us a great sense of security. Help us, Father, as we continue to study this book to be encouraged by it as difficult days are on the horizon. If there's anyone here apart from the Lord Jesus who has never yet acknowledged their sin, their condemnation, and uh, their need to trust in the Lord Jesus, may they acknowledge the Lord Jesus as the only provision for eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And if they lack the conviction that that is true, we pray that you might bring your word to bear in their lives in such a way that they cannot deny it. And Father, as we proclaim your word to those who are lost, we cast ourselves upon you and your power to do what our words cannot. And we ask you beyond that to give us lives which are consistent with your word and therefore that gives an added uh, authenticity to the message that we proclaim. In Jesus' name, amen.